there is another dimension beyond anything you've known before. A world of ideals that are as vast in their significance as they are in their application. You are traveling into another reality, a world that lies between imagination and the touch points of everyday life. A wondrous kingdom whose boundaries are supernatural. You're entering a parallel world. was a great guy. Everybody in his small town knew that Bob was a great guy. He owned a sand and gravel business there. He was a pillar of the community. He was on the zoning committee, he was on the school board, and he was the one person everyone would turn to if things got tense in a meeting. Bob seemed to have the ability to find a peaceable solution. Everybody looked up to Bob. His friends were telling him, like, Bob, I just wish my kids were as good as your kids, you know? People would come up to him and they'd be like, man, I don't know how you and Lynette do it. Your, your marriage is just awesome. And so it came as a real surprise to everyone in this county when Bob was scheduled to appear before the county judge. He'd been summoned to resolve a business dispute between his sand and gravel company and the county. But he was not the only one in court that day. Stephanie Powers was also there. She owned the local accounting office, was extremely successful, in fact, the town talk was that Stephanie would do anything, I mean anything, to succeed in business. She also did contract work for the county through her office. And when they appeared before the judge, the two could not have been more different. Bob was calm, he was relaxed, he was self-assured, and his appeal was basically a reminder of all the ways that he was a pillar in the community. He just kind of walked down through the list. I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. And Your Honor, you know that you can trust me. You, you know my reputation in this community. On the flip side, Stephanie was visibly shaken. Her normal high-cut skirt and plunging neckline were replaced with black slacks and a turtleneck dark gray sweater. Her normally perfect makeup looked smudged like she'd been crying and she had a tissue in one hand. She stood in front of the judge, head hung low and said, Your Honor, I know that any other accountant worth their salt could find mistakes in my books. I just want you to know I take full responsibility for them. They're my fault. Um, the discrepancy, any discrepancy between my accounts and the county's uh, are, are, are my fault and if you'll just give me 30 days, we'll get them all squared away and I'll make restitution. The judge said, I'm going to consider these matters. He declared a recess. Went back to his chambers, and it wasn't 15 minutes later. He came back out, said the court finds in favor of Mrs. Powers. Mr. Erickson will need to make his accounts conform to hers, and the county's case dismissed. Everybody's eyes turned into the size of a Buick hubcap. What? Mouths hanging open. It was one of those moments where everyone was in complete shock. Nobody expected this. I mean, within, within seconds, the, the news was all over the courthouse, and it was a small community. And if you know anything about small towns, 
the whole county knew in about an hour. What in the world? Now, how does that story make you feel? Maybe a little bit upset. It seems unfair. <laughs> Maybe a little bit confused. I, I, I'm not sure I understand what happened in that story. Maybe even a little bit skeptical, like, come on, Casey, you just made that up. See, when we hear stories like that, where it just, it's kind of going along, and you think you know how it's going to go, and then, er, it hangs the unexpected left turn. Like, what? We tend to be upset, maybe confused, maybe even a little bit skeptical. And in that respect, people haven't changed much in about 2,000 years. If you've got your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, thanks for being here today. Grateful for those here in the room. Thankful for those watching online. Uh, as, as Kyle said earlier, please fill out your connection card. Let us know that you're here. We're starting a new sermon series today called Parallel Worlds. And for the next uh, couple months, we're going to be learning about the parables of Jesus in Luke's gospel. The parables play a unique role in Jesus' teaching. I want to draw your attention to a quote by a noted Bible scholar from the early part of the 1900s, C.H. Dodd. He wrote this, The parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness, and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. The purpose of Jesus' parables is to reveal truth with those who have eyes to see and conceal truth from the spiritually blind. The purpose of the parables is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And if you'll forgive me for making a reference to the matrix, the purpose of the parables is to put a splinter in your mind. To, to just Because you'll go along through your life and, 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 and you'll be thinking about ordinary stuff and then all of a sudden this story just keeps running through your head and you're like hey I don't think he was talking about sheep I think he's talking about us hey I don't think he's talking about a shepherd I think he's talking about himself that's the way these stories work they're subversive they kind of get in under your skin and they just kind of Agitate until your brain goes, oh, maybe we are the soil. Hmm. In some ways, Jesus' parables present an alternate reality, kind of like a parallel world in the twilight zone, right? Or the variants in Marvel's Loki series on Disney+. Plus. And if you saw echoes of both of those shows in the bumper, that's intentional. This is reality as God sees it. Which is why sometimes the parable seems so strange to us. The one we're looking at today in Luke 18 would have been just as strange, just as jarring to Jesus' original audience that day as the story about Bob Erickson and Stephanie Powers was to you just a few minutes ago. So this might sound a little familiar. Let's read this passage together. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. Let's pause. The word confident there is one that meant to believe in something so much you put your trust in it. 
So what's that mean? It means they're putting their own, they're putting their trust in their own goodness, their own righteousness. So those who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So no confusion about who he's talking to here. Keep going. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, there's something we need to deal with in the grammar of the text that's really significant here, okay? You see the, the preposition in the first line there, by, all right? In the original text, it, it is impossible to know if the by is referencing the verb stood or the verb prayed. We really don't know. And it, it really could be either one. The grammar is such that it could be either one. So if, it's, if the word by there is connected to stood, it means he was kind of off away from everybody else, right? Like He's like, I'm not going to stand near you people. I'm going to stand over here. Right? He stood by himself. But it could also, grammatically in the original text, be equally applied to the word prayed. Now the translators of the NIV have made a decision here and they've connected it to stood. But in the original, it could be prayed. In other words, he, what this means is he, he prayed by himself. It's, he's talking about himself. The, the subject, the content of his prayer is him. He's talking to God, but he's talking about himself. Either way, no matter how you interpret it, the NIV made a decision, that's fine. No matter how you interpret it, the guy is a self-centered jerk. Okay? Consumed with self. Because he says, I'm not, I'm, thank you, I'm not like these other people. Now what that means is that he's, he's grouping everyone who's not a Pharisee is other people. Everybody. Right? So it doesn't matter. It's, it, it's Sadducees, you know, the, 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 the normal everyday folks and also these other folks, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or, or this tax collector. He singles him out. Right? So he's, gonna, he's talking about himself. Look at this. He says, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Let's define this a little bit, okay? Because we hear that and we're impressed. <laughs> Fasting in the Bible means to refrain from some appetite for the purpose of prayer. Right? The point of the fast, whatever it is, typically food, is that that feeling of hunger reminds you to pray. It urges you to pray. Right? So when we talk about fasting, typically that's what's meant. Not eating, and every time you feel hungry, ah, I need to pray. Okay? Um, and there were multiple ways that this happened. Sometimes they did a legit 24-hour fast from sundown to sundown, because the Jewish day ends at dusk and begins, you know, ends at dusk and, and starts a whole new day. So, Maybe that's what they would do, right? You, you would not eat, you know. Um, that sometimes our, our Muslim neighbors, uh, during, I don't know if you're familiar with Ramadan, it's a, they fast for a month, but they don't actually like stop eating for a month, right? Because we wouldn't have as many Muslim neighbors if they did that. Um, they don't eat during daylight. And so, so some, some of you like, I want to try fasting, but I don't know how to do it. You start there. Get up before the sun, pray, eat a light meal, and I mean light. Don't eat until dark, right? And then you can have a single meal. So that's a way to do it. Maybe that's what he's doing here. So he's doing that twice a week, right? And he's giving a tenth of all he gets. Now, this is the biblical tithe, 
okay? And I wanted to help define this for you because there's some, some, uh, a lack of clarity sometimes for the, for the church. I think Jesus is cool with tithing. In Matthew 23, 23, I think he put his stamp of approval on the practice. It's a good thing. It's not law. The New Testament standard is generosity, not, not the tithe, all right? The New Testament standard is just be generous. But it's a good thing. Now, what this means is it's a tenth, but it's the first and best tenth. In other words, a tithe, biblically speaking, is pre-tax. In other words, you're giving God the first 10%, the best 10%. Before Uncle Sam gets his cut, God gets 10. Okay? If you want, if, so if you're going to use the word, use it accurately. Because that's, that's what it means in the Bible. Right? But he says, all I get. He's also tithing on the produce from his garden. Some of you got a garden. We got like... 10 green beans out of ours. So we're going to bring one to the church and give it to Jesus, right? Like, okay, this is what he's doing. And here's, we read this and we go, ooh, this guy's spiritual. And the Pharisees listening to Jesus would have been rolling their eyes. This is the minimum standard as far as they're concerned. This is no big deal. This was normal, Right? So he's up there praying about himself. I do these things. And the Pharisees listening to Jesus would be like, oh, come on. We all do that. Who is this guy? Right? Big deal. Let's keep going. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. Do you know how Jewish people prayed? Sometimes they, they bowed down, like on their knees, face on the ground. They generally didn't pray like we tend to pray. Seated, hands folded, eyes closed, head bowed. That's, that was not necessarily normal for Jewish people. They would sometimes, right? Typically, it's they would kneel or they would stand, head up, arms up, eyes sometimes open, talking to God, right? Now, if you've ever had someone pray for you, like with their eyes open when they're looking at you, it's a little disconcerting. <laughs> it's cool, but weird. Um, so he's, he's doing this, right? It says he couldn't even look up. He couldn't assume the normal posture of prayer. It says, but he beat his breast. Now here's the deal. First century men in Jewish culture did not do that. Women did that. That was what women did, typically at a funeral. And, I'm, and you need to understand... It's a sign of extreme grief. It's a sign of brokenness. He's beating his breast. There's only one place in the whole other New Testament where it said men did this, and it's at the crucifixion of Jesus in Luke 23. It pops up three times in the prophets. He he is broken by his sin. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. His cry for mercy is a request for compassion in a time of hardship. He's asking God to see his spiritual pain and bring relief through the forgiveness of his sin. Let's keep going. He says, I, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God, made right. The word, and he goes on to say, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The word humble here is connected to the idea of being unpretentious. 
Boy, what a difference between those two, right? One's praying about himself, and the other is saying, I'm, I'm not even worthy to be here right now. Luke tells us when Jesus told this parable, he, he says that Jesus told it to those who were mistakenly, tragically confident that God was impressed with their religious resume. See, if the stated purpose of this parable is to force us to confront our own pride, our own bias against those of lesser spiritual spit polish, our own sin of self-righteousness, we better pay attention. But there's a subversive purpose at work in this parable for us here at Chapel Rock today. This parable makes us hold a couple things in tension, right? God's command to be holy and our constant need for grace. (laughs) How does this work? I think Jesus hits the nail on the head in verse 14, unsurprisingly, when he says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Sometimes Jesus does this for us. Sometimes he interprets the parable, right? The seed is the message of the gospel. The soil, people's lives. Like he he tells us this. Here he's saying, don't be a self-centered jerk, right? Humble yourselves before the Lord. (laughs) By the way, do, do do you know why the Bible says to humble yourself? You know why it says that over and over and over and over and over again? Because if God has to do it, you won't like it. If you humble yourself before the Lord, that, that's, that's good. If God has to humble you, that is deeply unpleasant. That's not, that's not fun. Okay. So we could read this, right? We could, Jesus interprets this parable for us, and we could walk out of here and go, oh, okay, I need, need to be humble. Great, you know. But, but my guess is that we all know that this is easier said than done, right? It's like the guy who wrote the two best-selling books, you know, Humility and How I Attained It, and The Ten Most Humble Men in the World and How I Chose the Other Nine. Don't buy that book. Um, it's, it's, it's harder than it sounds. And part of the reason that that's true is that the essence of humility, as C.S. Lewis said, is not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. Humility just means selflessness. It just you don't even factor into your own moral calculation. The very nature of Christian humility, the same issue that this parable is raising, is the kind of life that exalts God, right? And so I think the message of this parable is that we do this two ways. There are two ways that we live a life that exalt God. First is that we exalt God with a holy life. We exalt God with a holy life. Now, before we get into this, I think we need to deal with a common misconception. I I love how Haddon Robinson, who who was the president and professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, one of my favorite preachers, uh, just if you ever get a chance to listen to Haddon, you need to do it. He's with Jesus now. Uh, I got to hear him live one time before before he went to be with the Lord, and it was such a blessing. Um, (laughs) Went to a a convention, a preaching convention, and it was uh, Tony Evans and then Haddon, and it was like, Remember that Far Side commercial where the guy goes, Mr. Osborne, may I be excused? My brain's full. Like, it was like that. Oh, it was amazing. Anyway, but he said this about, about this text. He said, we know that one of the men was a Pharisee. Like Pavlov's dogs, we have been conditioned to think of all Pharisees as evil, so mentally we proceed to color him gray. On the other hand, the other fellow in the story is a tax collector. We recognize that tax collectors were not the best of men, but we suspect that in this story, at least, we're dealing with a good guy in disguise. Listen, nothing could have been further from the truth in the minds of Jesus' audience that day in Judea. Here's what's hard for us to accept. Everything the Pharisee said about himself in his prayer was true. 
that mess with you a little bit? Everything he said was accurate. He did those things. He was that way. We are so conditioned, as Haddon said, to thinking of Pharisees as the bad guys. And, and so conditioned to thinking, well, it's a parable, so this tax collector is probably a good guy in disguise. We're so conditioned by this, especially if, like me, you grew up in the church. That we, we totally ignore the fact that if you had a choice about who your neighbors were, you would not pick the tax collector. Right? It's, it's July 4th weekend. I'm so grateful that we live in America. I've had an opportunity to travel. I've been to some other countries. I am so thankful to live here. I love this country. I'm grateful that I live where I do, when I do. It's I, Fourth of July. It's awesome. I love it. I think my neighbors love it too because the fireworks, oh my word. <laughs> Just put the kids down, man. It's a war zone out there. <laughs> we love America. Let's blow stuff up. Um, but here's the thing. If you could pick your neighbors, you would pick the Pharisee. He's a good guy. He pays his taxes. He works hard. He loves his family. He supports his country. If you could pick your neighbors, you would pick the Pharisee, not the tax collector. This is the guy we want as a neighbor. See, it's tempting for us to want to turn these parables into a Pharisee bashing time. And while we have to take every step to cut the Pharisee's spiritual pride out of our own lives, we dare not forget the warning issued by Walter Bowie who wrote this, before we condemn the Pharisee or dismiss him, let us at least be sure that we have risen to his level. If he had his grievous limitations, nevertheless, he did have solid virtues, which not every man attains. These are his words, he says. There are plenty of flabby persons who call themselves religious but have never reached the level on which the Pharisee was moving. All God's people said, ouch. See, here's the big difference between the Pharisee and you and I. In his prayer, he thanked God, but he talked about himself. Has anyone ever told you that you need to occasionally do a pronoun audit on your prayer life? Count pronouns. How, much of, how many of your prayers are me, my, our, versus you, your, he? Count pronouns. He prayed to God, but he talked about himself. And here's the thing, D.O. Moody said, a holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they just shine. The Pharisee's blowing his holiness horn, right? He's telling everyone, including God, how holy he is. He's not an evil man, he's a good man. But he wasn't exalting God with his holy life, he was exalting himself. Parables have this tendency to be subversive. It's like the twilight zone, right? It's this parallel world. The parable subverts our understanding of the purpose of holiness. The purpose of holiness is not to make you feel good about yourself. The purpose of holiness is not to make others feel good about you. The purpose of holiness is to exalt God. A life that is in constant submission to God through a life of holiness gives God glory and praise and honor because, as Kyle told us, he is worthy of it. He alone is worthy of it. 
You need to exalt God with a holy life. So we turn from the Pharisee, the one everybody wanted to be like, to the tax collector, the man everybody loved to hate. The problem is in the parable, Jesus once again subverts our expectation because he pronounces a benediction, he pronounces a blessing of forgiveness on this man, not because of his life, but because of his prayer, because of his repentance. That's the second way we exalt God. We exalt God by living a holy life. We also exalt God with a humble heart. See, if you want to understand the Jewish mindset about tax collectors, I've been trying to think, like, how can I, because we just, it's such a foreign thing for us. I'm like, how can I put this for a modern American audience that, that you'll, you'll get the way that this would have hit Jesus, the, his original audience? And the best thing I can come up with, and it's not perfect, but the best thing I can come up with is like, just imagine that your, your brother-in-law or your aunt or whoever like worked for H&R Block. Like it's their job to get you the biggest tax return possible, to lower your tax burden. And, and one day out of the blue, they accept a job with the IRS or as a lobbyist with Congress and somehow are personally responsible for your taxes going up. Like you, like, you switch sides, you traitor. Right? Like that's the way the Jewish people felt about tax collectors. Because they were Jews who were working for Rome. I want you to think, like when Jesus chose the 12, right? Peter, Andrew, James, John. They're fishermen. They're small business owners. And then Jesus picks Matthew. He picks Levi. What did he do? He ran the tax collecting booth at the Sea of Galilee. He's the guy who set the taxes for Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Can you imagine how that conversation went down? They're walking by the tax booth. Jesus says, follow me. And Peter, Andrew, James, and John are like, not that guy. Don't pick him, Jesus. No, Matthew, he drives us nuts. I got it. Now I got to love him. Ah! <laughs> Tax collectors were hated, but you had to treat them nice because the system was corrupt. And if you didn't treat them nice, they make your life horrible and expensive. So in the text, he's standing off by himself. Not because nobody wants to hang out with him, but because the weight of his sin is breaking him. He doesn't feel worthy to be close to the altar. Pharisee's off by himself because he thinks he's better than everybody. Tax collector's off by himself because he knows he's not. And he cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And before we unpack that, and I will in a little bit, You've got to understand when this took place. We can't know for sure. It's a parable. But the language here is almost identical to Acts chapter 3. Now remember, the, the apostle Luke, uh, not apostle, sorry, uh, Luke, uh, the author of the gospel, also wrote the book of Acts. The language is nearly identical to Acts 3. Acts 3, right? Peter and John go up to the temple to pray. It's where they meet the lame guy, they heal him. He goes running and jumping and praising God. Remember, we all sang the song in, in children's church. The, it says that they went up to the temple to pray. It was, it's probably the afternoon sacrifice, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The, they're at church. This whole parable takes place at church. Now, here's why that matters. There's a guy named Kenneth Bailey. He's a Christian anthropologist and lived with a Bedouin tribe for 20 years. He wrote a wonderful book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. 
And I cannot recommend this highly enough. If you were to see my copy, like every other page, there's notes and underlining and writing, and it's so good. And it kind of blows your mind. Like, it's just the insight into that culture is incredible. And in this book, about this book, about this parable, here's what he writes. Both the Pharisee and the tax collector are standing in front of the great high altar on which a lamb without blemish has just been sacrificed for the sins of Israel. The tax collector stands far off, apart from the worshipers gathered around the altar, and watches the sacrifice of the lamb. He listens to the blowing of the silver trumpets and the great clash of the cymbals, hears the reading of the psalm, and watches the blood splashed on the sides of the altar. He sees the priest disappear inside the temple to offer incense before God. Shortly afterward, the priest reappears, announcing that the sacrifice has been accepted. Israel's sins are washed away by the atoning sacrifice of the Lamb. The trumpets blow again, and the incense wafts to heaven. The great choir sings, and the tax collector, distraught and beating his chest, stands far off and cries out, O Lord, make an atonement for me, a sinner. And Jesus' point is this. If you're only going to pray one prayer... You better cry out for mercy. If you've got only one, we don't know, there are no other prayers of this tax collector that are recorded in scripture, but we know this one. If you've got one prayer, don't give God your spiritual resume. (laughs) Cry out for mercy. And listen, we've got to steadfastly avoid the cancerous spiritual pride and lack of love that possessed the Pharisee in the parable. But I don't think we should go too lightly on ourselves in this area. I mean, the last thing I want you to do is to leave church today and think, hey, I'm going to be like this tax collector. I can do whatever I want all week long as long as I go to church and pray good on Sunday. I told you before, I said some people, you know, sow wild oats all week long, go to church and pray for a crop failure. That's not what this is saying. The tax collector exalted God not through his life up to that point, but through his repentance and his prayer, through his humble heart. And at the end of the day, I think the reason Jesus pronounces a benediction of justification on the tax collector was because he humbled himself enough to ask. The Pharisee didn't seem to think he had a need for it. He He could have received the same benediction if he would have acknowledged his need. He didn't think he needed to ask. The early church father, Basil the Great, put it best. He said, he, the Pharisee, which judged inferior to a humble man and a sinner because in his self-exaltation he did not await the judgment of God but pronounced it himself. The key here is to have the humble heart that the tax collector had and the holy life that the Pharisee displayed without the respective immorality or self-righteous pride of either. Boy, that's a parallel world to what we see today, isn't it? The point of this alternate reality is to get you to live a holy life with a humble heart. So let's do a little thought experiment. Let's say you go home tonight, you're getting everything ready for 4th of July celebration, right? Getting the grill clean, getting everything ready, making pie, whatever it is you do, you know, lining up the fireworks in order. And you get it all done, and you sit down in your living room at night, turn on the evening news, just get caught up on what's going on in the world, and Jesus appears in a manifestation in your living room. Not in bodily form, he's just the vision of Jesus right there. Click, turn off the news. This is more important. And Jesus says to you, he says, okay, um, whatever one single thing you ask for in your next prayer, I will give to you 
exactly as you ask. How would you respond? What would you ask for? I don't know about you, but I'd, you know, hit my knees, because we would, right? And say, can I have a second to think about this? And I don't know what you would say. But I will say that this Pharisee and this tax collector are a good lesson for us. If you're going to sit there and tell Jesus, I'm pretty awesome, don't you think? Not smart. You've got one prayer. You make it a cry for mercy. And then you live a holy life. That's our big idea this morning. If you had only one prayer to pray, you humble yourself and ask for mercy, and then you live a life of holy humility. See, there's one other thing about this text. The word that the tax collector used translated mercy is not the normal word for mercy in the New Testament. This is a specific word that applies to the temple and forgiveness. In his humility and his brokenness, he's asking God to pay the price for his sin. Some of you may need to do that this morning. In just a second, we're going to sing together. And if you've never asked God to take away your sin, to allow the price that Jesus paid when he died on the cross in your place for your sin, to count for you, you've got an opportunity to do that today. Maybe you're going to, as we have a time of response, you're going to pray for our country, that more and more people would do that, that a time of, of repentance and revival would come sweep across this land. Maybe you're here today and you're like, you know, I made that decision a long time ago and I'd, I, I've probably been more like the tax collector than the Pharisee and I need to repent and recommit my life. And maybe you do that in your seat and maybe you want to do it publicly. Maybe you need prayer. I don't know. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and we're going to sing together and you respond as God leads you today.